Uh, if the last time you saw me was when I was 17 years old, you're probably pretty concerned right now. And I'm here to encourage you that you should be. That's okay. I give you permission to be concerned. Uh, no, to be honest, it is, it's an honor to be here. It's also really special for me to be here. I mean, I'm looking out in the crowd right now, and I see a lot of people who have been with me for a lot of my life. And, um, yeah, it just means a lot to me. Uh, I wanted to say thank you. I love you. Thank you for pointing me to Jesus when I wanted nothing to do with him. Thank you for loving me when I felt so unlovable. Um, yeah, I'm just honored to be here. Um, we'll be going through uh, this Advent series called Emmanuel, God with us. And this is the last uh, sermon or the last uh, message in this series, even though we're outside of Advent. Apparently, we're still preaching out of Advent. I didn't really understand that, but I'm excited that we're going to do this. We're going to be looking at this passage in Revelation uh, through three different time dimensions, three different time dimensions. And you're probably thinking like, Bud, did you eat some weird mushrooms when you thought of that? No. I promise it's going to make sense. We're going to look at the past. We're going to, look, we're going to reflect. We're going to look at the future. What, what are we hoping towards? And we're going to look at the present. How does this all apply? Okay. So let's look at our text this morning from Revelation 21 and 22. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city and new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall, be, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will all the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then in chapter 22, And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever. Say it with me. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Pray with me. Father, this is your word. We submit to you this morning. We pray that uh, whatever morsel uh, that I could bring, that we could have in these uh, few minutes, that you would create an abundance, that you would create an overflow, that you would excite our hearts to the beauty of, of our future home with you, Lord. Uh, we need you, we trust you, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, in the finale of The Office, the sappy and sometimes angry character Andy Bernard says this, as everything is about to change, as uh, characters are going their separate ways and storylines are wrapping up, Andy says this, I wish there was a way to know you're in the good old days before you've actually left them. I wish there was a way to know you're in the good old days before you've actually left them. And we hear and we feel this sentiment deeply, don't we? We resonate with uh, this line. How many times over the holidays did you or a loved one possibly say a variation of that? Something like, things aren't how they used to be. Or, I'm so glad I didn't grow up in this generation. Or, how could anyone raise kids in this culture? I was guilty of this last week as me and my family were watching Charlie Brown Christmas. And Lionel gets up on stage and he reads through Luke 2. And I was thinking to myself, this would never fly today, right? In a national comic. This would never fly today. It's this pervasive, nostalgic feeling that is littered throughout our social channels and thought processing. And I'm here this morning, Redeemer, to bring you the cheery news that that is a misguided desire. I'm not saying that it's an incorrect statement. It's true that Charlie Brown Christmas would look a lot different in 2023, okay? I'm saying that our diagnosis is wrong. The problem is not the right now, like the 1960s were better, God was not more present then than he is now. There's no denying, though, that Andy Bernard's line from the office, there's something within it that resonates with us. There's a longing that we feel. We hear it and we're like, yes, I want whatever that goodness is. I want to be able to, to know that I'm in it when I'm in it, right? But then why does Ecclesiastes 7 say this? Don't long for the good old days, for that is not wise. Don't long for the good old days, for that is not wise. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, these things, so whatever you thought of when you heard good old days, whatever nostalgic thought popped up for you, that's these things, these things, the memories of our own past, they are good images, Keyword images, okay? They are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they, term, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself, they are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a far country we have not yet visited. Brothers and sisters, may I appeal to you this morning what if, what if our current displeasure in the present isn't a cry for the past, 
but a longing for the future. There's a group of German philosophers, um, guys like Sigmund Freud and others 150 years ago, who were battling with this uh, existential crisis that a lot of people were having, uh, this uncanny feeling, this unsettled feeling, and they didn't really know how to describe it in the words that we have, so they made up a word. They made up a word, and they, they called it unheimlich, unheimlich. And I know there's a lot of probably fluent uh, German speakers in here. That word literally means, they made it up, it means this, not at homeness. The only way they knew how to describe this existential crisis that all humans go through that manifests, that makes us make our decisions to look for satisfaction, the only way they could describe it was describing it as feeling not at home. And they didn't know that they were giving me a layup for Ecclesiastes 3, which says God has placed eternity on our hearts. God has placed another home. My voice just cracked so bad. (laughs) This is perfect. I told you, be concerned. Be concerned, it's good. God has placed another home on our hearts, right? Something outside of this, this limited time that we get here on earth. And if, church, if we inherently have desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, doesn't that lead you to believe that we were made for another world? If you do not feel at home, doesn't that make you believe that you were made for somewhere different? To morph Andy's language from earlier, do you wish that there was a way to look into the good old days before you actually got there? If this were so, would you not want to know about it? Wouldn't you want to look at the house before you bought it? Wouldn't you want to show your kids, to excite them towards it, to dream about it? And because of God's grace this morning, we get to, and it's here in Revelation 21 and 22, we get to look at our future home. But before we do that, let me give some context for Revelation, because it's a book that Uh, can be taken out of context sometimes. Uh, There's uh, a a niche of this thing called framing, not like building framing or like construction framing. I've been doing a deep dive recently. There's uh, technicians who are purposed in building frames specifically for priceless pieces of art. They're hired by the Louvre, they're hired by the London Museum, these places, and they build these beautiful frames that are meant for specific pieces of art. And a woman was talking about framing, and she said this, your field of vision is influenced by the frame. If the frame is too gaudy, or if it's disproportionate, or if it's warped, you're not going to see the painting. And it's all about the painting. The book of Revelation is meant to act as a frame, a beautiful frame, making the painting pop and be full of colors and depths that we have never seen before. And what, of course, is the painting? The the painting is the main point of our series. It's the tension of the entire Bible. It is God with us. Revelation is meant to awaken our imaginations towards that and what that is. It's not a book that we are meant to decode. It is apocalyptic literature with imagery 
that's meant to enliven our faith, to ignite our joy as we await our final home. It's a gift when life is hard and everything seems dull. It's here to get this one single point across. If you don't get anything from my sermon, anything from, anything from this passage except this one thing, let it be this. Jesus wins. That's the point of Revelation. And what does he win? He wins his people. And God shows us this through images. Why does he choose images? Because we are a people who are captivated by stories. And it is the images that truly do refresh us and enliven us and stick with us. It's why Jesus gives us such marvelous parables when he could have just plainly stated the truth. And so Jesus says to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos, as John is receiving this vision, Jesus looks at him and he says in verse 5, write this down. Why does he tell John? I mean, all of the Bible is for us, but why would Jesus so specifically tell John, make sure you write this down? It's because he wants us to behold it. He wants us to look forward to it. He wants us to set our gaze towards it, to see these images and, be, and to be enlivened and to, and to let the joy be ignited in our hearts, right? And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to go sightseeing. That's what I'm calling it. We're going sightseeing for our new home. We're going to look at a few of these images to awaken our faith, except we're only going to look at three of them. Uh, if I went through all of them, we'd be here for four hours, and I know that you want that super bad. Not going to do that this time. Only three of them. I'm going to go kind of quickly, and I'm going to jump around, okay? So hold on. And like I said, be concerned. Be concerned. It's good. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Uh, The original readers of this passage would have had a very visceral reaction to this one part of the verse about the sea. For them, the sea was an agent of fear. You can think about the ancient Israelites. Uh, They would have read the biblical stories and seen passages like the flood, God decimating the world through the flood, through the sea. You can think about the Red Sea, the Egyptians being crushed by the Red Sea, or you can think of Jonah and his fishy experience, right? The sea for them was this tumultuous, chaotic, dark, looming place of danger. They were terrified by it. Then you have this guy, Jesus, who shows up on the scene and he walks on it and he rebukes it with a word. And if you remember the story, this induces a fear into the disciples that far surpasses anything they feel towards the sea. However, it's a good fear. It's a fear that they can trust. And there's a real sense where we we get this in movies or in stories that we know, right? Like in Narnia, there's a sense where Aslan is much more terrifying than the White Witch. Or in Harry Potter, where Dumbledore is much more startling than Voldemort. Or in Lion King, I mean, I'm hitting all the points. Lion King, Mufasa is much more dangerous than the hyenas. And yet, how much more of a difference does it make if the one who you fear most is totally for you and on your side? 
There's a real sense in these movies with these good archetypes like Aslan and Dumbledore where you see the people with them and you, and you know they're going to be safe. You know they're going to be all right. The same goes with Jesus. And so church, let me ask you, what, what is it that's keeping you up at night? What nightmares seem to be so reoccurring for you? Are you socially anxious because you hate the sound of your voice or you hate uh, the idea of rejection? You're scared of the idea of rejection. Is something like death so crippling for you that sometimes you can't even get out of bed? This is what this one image, like this one part of this verse of our new home is telling you. The king of the sea has spoken. In our future home, all of those anxieties and all of those fears will be no more. God will be so intimate. He will be so close. He will be so for us that all of our fears and all of our anxieties will feel like a long-lost bad dream. Second image I want to look at is this image of the city. Verse 2, And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Her husband, Verse 22, and I saw no temple in the city. Chapter 22, verse 2, through the middle of the streets of the city. If you know Jesus, do you know that you are headed towards a city? And I, I know my audience in here. Some of you don't like that idea because you're thinking that I'm talking about urban versus rural. I'm not. I'm sure there's going to be plenty of land in the new creation (laughs) for you to be farming and doing the things that you do. (laughs) Here's what this text is telling us, what it means, city. It means a collection of people from all nations in one place. It's a big place. In one place with a culture centered around the highest good. I'll say that again. A collection of people from all nations in one place with a culture centered around the highest good. You see this in our cities today. If I said something like New York City or Charlotte or Tampa or Miami or Washington, D.C. or San Francisco, Collections of people with cultures around a highest good. You probably had connections to those cities where you thought, hmm, that city cares a lot about sex or individuality or power or money. The highest good that they deem. The art, the architecture, the culture is all predicated on what the highest good is. So, let's think for a second. What does it mean if there will be a collection of people whose highest good is Yahweh, is the God of the Bible? What's that going to look like? Andrew Wilson, uh, who wrote a book called God of All Things, who I've stolen from a bunch for these images, one of my favorite books from last year. Please go read it. Um, He said this about our future city. In New Jerusalem... All of the evil features of your city and mine are removed. Instead, all of their good features are amplified. 
She is full of art without idolatry, abundance without greed, and peace without injustice. There is music, wine, laughter, and street food. Old people sit in their porches at dusk, and boys and girls play in the streets. That's Zechariah 8. And best of all, she is centered not on an urban park or a monument or a skyscraper, nor even on a cathedral or temple, but on a throne. God is in the midst of her, and she shall never be moved. We look for this city that is to come. Have you ever wondered, like me, if heaven is going to be boring? The Bible tells us a completely different story. We will not find ourselves in an entirely alien order of being. No, it will be, all the, it will be the amplification of all the good things beyond our wildest dreams. Third image, quickly, verse 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations walk. Verse 25, and there will be no, and there will be no night there. Chapter 22, verses 5, and the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, there's this amazing paradox with light that it is both invisible, yet by it we see everything else. You cannot hold on to it. You cannot grab it, but also by its presence there is warmth. Uh, when Jesus was transfigured in the gospel accounts, do you remember what Peter's reaction was? Jesus is transfigured, and Peter's like, all right, I'll just set up a tent right here. I'll make a fire. Like, I'm just going to camp here, Jesus. We're going to stay here because I don't want to leave this place. What would compel somebody to ask such a preposterous question? It's because, I don't think it's that preposterous, in heaven, with Jesus, there will be a warmth and a perception so satisfying so at home, so secure, that we couldn't imagine being anywhere else. Peter is there, and he sees Jesus, and he has this, there's an overwhelming light about him, and he's so warm, and he sees so much of it, and he's like, I just want to be here. I just want to camp here. In heaven, in new creation, we will see things as God sees them. Our perception will be totally renewed and oriented towards beauty and love and the things that he cherishes. We're going to see things because of the light that he gives off. We'll be totally satisfied. And so you have these three images of sea and city and light. Sea, city, and light. And again, going back to this framing image, what, what is this framing us towards? What is Revelation trying to bring us, bring our field of vision into? Uh, when I was in the ninth grade, I bombed a physics test. There was no doubt I bombed this physics test. And I remember the, a week later, I was getting the exam back, and I was expecting, like, my 45F or whatever I got. 
and my teacher placed a hundred in front of me. I'm looking at it and I was like, oh, I guess I'm just brilliant. (laughs) I guess that I, or I'm the best guesser. I think it was like a short answer too. I was like, I guess that I'm the best guesser that's ever existed. I saw the hundred, it was right in front of me. And then I heard from the back, I heard the teacher tell the whole class, hey guys, I had a bunch of typos on this exam, so I gave everybody a hundred. The reality of what I saw was much different in my head after I heard what the teacher said. That paradigm is happening all the time in Revelation. We see it over and over again, this this pattern of hearing and seeing and how the things that John sees are, are interpreted by what he hears. And the things that he hears are interpreted by what he sees. In Revelation 5, John hears in this vision, he hears about a lion of the tribe of Judah who is the conqueror of evil and death. Like, put yourself in John's shoes real quick. He, He hears that. What's his reality? He's thinking about a lion, a huge, ferocious lion. And then he looks, and what does he see? He turns, and he sees a lamb that was slain. Jesus ferociously conquered evil by becoming the sacrificial lamb at Calvary. That was the reality. Notice all all of those images that we just covered. All of those images is John seeing them. He sees them all. So we have to ask ourselves the question, if this pattern is repeated, which is what happens in Revelation and in a lot of the Bible, what's the pattern? What did John hear What's the key, you could say? What's, what's the code for all of these things that are going on? What does he hear? What interprets all of what he sees? What's the reality of these images? It's in verses 3 through 5, and it's really the crux. It's the, it is uh, the, the richest part of this passage to me. Verses 3 through 5. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The great joy of our eternal home will be the immediate, the intense, the intimate presence of God with us. Every ounce of imagery we just went through, the the reason that we do not have to fear anymore, the reason that we'll be able to see and be satisfied, the reason that there's going to be a city that's beyond our wildest dreams, the reason that all those things exist is an outflow of the primary intimacy with God. It is unheimlich eradicated. It is a feeling of homeness, total homeness. It's my, this is my favorite part of the gospel too, is the verse before this. Um, God is not preparing a room for us begrudgingly. 
Look, that's why there's this marriage language in verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's why in chapter 19 of Revelation, there's the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a feast with all of God's people. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, did you ever stop to think that God is going to be as pleased to have you, if not more pleased to have you with him in heaven than, than you are to be there? God does not do these things out of a begrudging obligation. He is not seeking an arm's length relationship or a heavenly cohabitation. The advent of Jesus proves that. Does the bloodied and scourged and naked and shamed and pierced body of Jesus look like a begrudging obligation to you? Or does it look like love? Does it look like a love that has no bounds? Hebrews says, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. And so, church, think with me. If it was for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, how much more of a joy is he having in preparing us a room in the new heavens and the new earth? Like, what's it like? Uh, if you're like me, you may feel like uh, this future hope, this future home that you've been cheated for many years. Like Western culture has arrayed for us this stupid fake heaven that isn't real. It's insanely lame. Like what did you think heaven was like for, I thought heaven was totally different for the first 20 years of my life. How many people around the world still understand heaven as not being a new earth, number one, but being this ethereal space where we meander around the clouds with baby angels and harps. And no wonder we long for the past. That sounds horrible. <laughs> that sounds awful. That's not biblical at all. Jesus is preparing us a room. St. Augustine said when he was walking along the Mediterranean Sea at sunset, he said this, If these are the beauties afforded to sinful man, what does God have in store for those who love him? So with this beautiful place that is in store for us, the, the final question is this, how does, all, how does this help us right now? How does this apply to our day-to-day uh, there's this phenomenon with our vision. It's called parallax. Parallax, um, the human eyes have an ability to see objects in a three-dimensional way. Our uh, right eye and our left eye send different information back to our brain. It's why when you lose eyesight in one eye, you lose depth perception. I wanted to see how many of you did that. Okay, Some of you did do it. Parallax, it gives us a three-dimensional landscape. And the church's vision is very similar. A Christian's vision is similar. We are meant to look at our culture. We are meant to look at the present. We are meant to look at our day-to-day -day while simultaneously keeping our perspective set on our future home. Focusing on only one, focusing on just the present or focusing just on our future home will either lead us into stagnation or obliviousness. 
we look towards a future expectation that helps us look with new eyes towards the present. They work together. They work simultaneously. Uh, James K. A. Smith, who's one of my favorite authors, he says this, uh, Christians are a futural people. Every day we pray for God's kingdom to come. But as long as we are praying it, it hasn't arrived, which means we are also waiting, awaiting people. We are pulled toward a home we haven't yet visited. We are oriented to what is coming, not to what has been. If your faith is in Christ, you are a certified citizen in this holy city. That's why, that's the Lamb's book of life. You are written in the Lamb's book of life. Your future is eternally altered. Jesus is preparing you a room. There will be a day when we will dwell with him to the fullest degree. That is true. How does that reframe our reality right now? What does that do for us? Two application points for our now, and then I'm done. Two application points. First, how does that reframe the present? How does that reframe for us right now? First, we become a people who pray. This new creation perspective, looking towards our future home, causes us to pray. It moves us to pray. And it's this two-sided coin. On one side of the coin, uh, James says this, Every good gift and every perfect gift is, comes from above. So, whatever good and perfect gift we have received here by grace, we can actually long for that in new creation. If we know that the good and perfect gifts here, if we know that our gifts here are going to be amplified in new creation, we get to look forward to those things. When you have that fun conversation on the porch with a friend, pray for Jesus to come quickly because you can't wait for what that's gonna be like in new creation. When you see a sunrise in the morning, pray that Jesus would come quickly because what's the sunrise gonna look like in new creation? If work for you feels fulfilling and satisfying, pray for Jesus to come quickly because what's it gonna be like there? Even in the small, like simple things, if you're having a piece of food or drinking water, how much more refreshing is it going to be when Jesus returns and brings new creation? And then on the other side of the coin, this is more of a somber note. And I did this purposefully because our prayer lives are, are oriented in this way. We can uh, realize that, uh, man, there are so many good gifts, God. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And then two minutes later, we can be hit in the side of the face by life and... <laughs> Our prayer lives can very much mimic that of, oh, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you for this good gift, but also this is really hard. So on the other side of the coin, when we read about the 10,000-plus children that have been bombed and are suffocating under the rubble in Gaza, we pray. We pray that Jesus would come quickly that death would be no more, that suffering would be no more, that he would please put an end to all of this madness, right? When the next news line pops up on our phones that there's an active shooter at a school, we pray, Lord, please come soon, stop this. We need you, we need creation renewed. When a household falls apart, we pray. When cancer interrupts, we pray. 
And we do not pray as a people without hope. We pray tear-soaked prayers shaped by this vision from John, from Jesus really, a new heaven and a new earth where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. I mean, does your heart cry for that? Is that, is that the song from a far country that you know to be so true? When you see those headlines, when you feel the weight of that, does your heart cry that it's not supposed to be that way? For both sides of the coin, we pray and we plead, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And then secondly, we witness. We witness how... Uh, how does all of this, how does looking into the future of our eternal home, how does that reframe our current reality? We witness. Notice what Jesus says in verse 5. And he who was seated on on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Notice what he doesn't say. He does not say, I am making all new things. He does not say, he will be making all things new. No, he says, I am making all things new. Present tense, restorative. In this room right now, throughout our county, throughout the world, Jesus is at work renewing and restoring by the power of the Spirit. He says he likens it to a mustard seed in the gospel. Sometimes it's hard to see. It's small, but he's working. He's doing it right now. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, therefore, if anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Like present tense, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God is not waiting until the end of the world to renew. He has already begun. And so we, as the church, we do not idly wander around just waiting. We get the honor and we get the joy of joining in the work of God as he's establishing his final dwelling place in our midst here in new creation, whatever that's going to look like, wherever that's going to be. That's why I call uh, this last point as I'm wrapping up new creation resolution I thought that was kind of fun. (laughs) New creation resolution. Not a should or a should not. It's not this moralistic thing to do like we can uh, get our heads around with New Year's resolutions. No, it's not like that at all. It is a call to beauty. It is a call to align ourselves with the truth that Jesus wins. It's a call to set our gaze upon that and then to look at our, present, at our present right now and to pray and to witness that he is working, that we will be at home with him forever soon. A new creation resolution is looking forward to the fairy tale ending, the tension finally resolved, God being with us forever. I'll wrap up by... Uh, saying this uh, hymn that I love, All Glory Be to Christ. When on the day the great I am, the faithful and the true, the Lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light, and we shall ere his people be 
All glory be to Christ. Amen. That's what we get to look forward to in our future home. Pray with me. Uh, Jesus, we, we do give you all of the glory this morning, and we pray. We pray that we would become a people who would pray and who would witness to your kingdom being at hand, being at work right now, that you'd give us the eyes to see faithfully, to witness in the, the miraculous ways that you are working on this side of eternity. Thank you, Jesus, that you are a God who is not uh, waiting to make all things new, but you are actually working right now, and we get to witness that, and that is so exciting. Excite our hearts towards our future home with you, Lord. It's so fun to know that whatever it's going to be like, it will be so beyond anything that we can ever imagine. Set our eyes towards that beauty of that far country this morning and throughout our weeks, where death will be no more, where suffering will be forgotten, and where we will feast with you, our great love, our dwelling place, our God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, amen. Um, <clears throat> Steve and Kathy, if you are watching, thank you. Uh, we appreciate gifting us uh, with this guy um, for many, many reasons. Um, if you uh, hold your hands out to receive this benediction, uh, we've talked a lot about what will happen. Uh, and so the benediction is really the until then, uh, grab hold of this, take it with you. Uh, may, it, may it rest kind of in the basement of your soul uh, until that day. Uh, we don't know when it's coming, but we know it's coming. And the promise is that we have the Spirit. Uh, the Spirit, the Bible says, is the deposit of the inheritance that is ours. So as you go, go with the Spirit and go with these words, okay? So receive the benediction. If your faith is in Christ, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen.